When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and an episode where we don't not answer your listener questions. That was a double negative, but I'm double positive. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man whose club is the one in Manchester that doesn't care for the League Cup, Taylor Rockwell. Oh, yeah, I mean that, several other competitions, but yeah, that feels about right. Thanks for that, Ryan. A fun start to today's show. So League Cup, League's Cup as well, Taylor? Is that, are we adding that to the list for Man United? I mean, they probably will. They're trying, you know, they want that global brand. Maybe they'll come over and participate. I think we do need one more competitor. I think the numbers don't quite work for the, like, the 16 uh, t- times three groups. So maybe they do mm-hmm. need one more. Maybe Manchester United are going to come over and participate. Let's get that going. 2023 United in CONCACAF. I like yeah. to hear it, Tay Tay. That's what I didn't like to see. Nemanja Matic in that game, Manchester United against yeah. West Ham. Um, getting a little bit of a knee into Vladimir Sufal's gentleman's lunchbox and uh, not being punished for it at all, Taylor. <laughs> gentleman's lunchbox. Wow. I have not heard that one before. That's good work by you, Ryan. Yeah, especially in, in the world of VAR, you, you would expect that to be pretty harshly punished and mm. be something that players would maybe be more mindful of. But I guess Matic has no disregard for people's lunches or their lunchboxes. Well, it was described as off-the-ball contact, but I, I thought it was quite the opposite. Man City, <laughs> uh, Man City in the next round for West Ham. Uh, could have been a Manchester derby there, Taylor. You missed out on in the League Cup. How do you feel? I mean, I feel like maybe that was a deliberate decision so they didn't have to go up against Man City in a cup competition this early in the season. Uh, that's that's me being positive because the other way to put it is uh, it's probably just more realistically that they don't care about the League Cup and so they're focused on other competitions. Uh, and Anthony Martial echoing that by also not caring about the game that he was playing in. Tell you what I care about. A man who informs us that 16.6% of goals in MLS this year have come from corner kicks and set pieces. That's in his latest MLSsucker.com article. Even though 87.7% of statistics are made up on the spot, it's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. I, that's one of my favorite bits, the made-up statistics bit. That's, that's good work by you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the only one making up statistics, to be clear. Yours oh, yeah. were quite valid in your MLS <laughs> soccer piece, we should add. Um, it got me thinking, um, because I only think about myself, Joe, about AFC Wimbledon. And uh, they were described <laughs> this week in The Guardian as set-piece kings. Uh, nine goals from set pieces so far this season. That's more than any other team in the top four tiers of uh, English soccer. Um, and I, I, when I go with my brother to AC Wimbledon, his, his seats are about four rows behind the bench. And every time there's a, a restart and there's a, a set piece, a, a corner or whatever, there's a guy who stands up and runs to the edge and he starts directing things. He's Andy Parslow, AC Wimbledon's restart coach. He's focused on it. throw-ins, free kicks and corners. And it, it sounds like it's working. Nine goals already, Joe. Yeah, we're seeing that trend across soccer right now. Like Italy at the Euros, I don't know if you guys remember, they had a set-piece coach for the national team. And there's lots of different 
international teams and club teams that are doing this now, and it's been happening for a little while, but it's starting to become more trendy to do that stuff and to have creative set pieces or at least emphasize set pieces more. And I think it's great for the game. Teams are always looking for little marginal advantages to create. And I think that's a great way to go about doing that. So yeah, go on Wimbledon, Ryan. Well, thank you, Joe. I was having a good day until you mentioned Italy and the Euros. Why, 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 why would you bring that energy in here? Got to keep you it even. Got to keep it even, Ryan. <laughs> you do indeed. And keeping our awesome foursome even, it's a man who is in dire straits now because the UK is having a CO2, a carbon dioxide shortage right now, which is affecting production of his favourite drink, Iron Brew. Is this true, Graham Rutherford? Oh, it is. Scotland's a very depressed place at the moment, even more depressed than as a uh, customary because it seems like Iron Brew stocks are going to run out soon along with the rest of our food stocks. Thank you, Brexit. Thank you for that. Yeah, so this is um, a CO2 okay, shortage in the UK I was reading about. Some kind of vote that was held that cut off supplies to an island that's a net importer of goods. Some vote a few years ago, Graham. Yeah, as, as you mentioned there, but um, it means CO2 isn't just for like carbonated beverages or beer. Apparently, you can't stun livestock to produce meats. You can't preserve fruit and veg. And most importantly to you, iron brew is going away. So, uh, I mean, I would suggest we, we, we produce a lot of hot air and CO2 on this podcast. Maybe we should try and power the UK CO2 shortage. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, that's, maybe that way we can uh, keep up the staple diet of the average UK football fan, which is almost exclusively meat and beer. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we are pretty screwed. Oh, one more thing, Graham, before we get to the listener questions in this episode. Vigilante update, please. What happens? They got them! We didn't what? get them, but yeah. the cops got them. <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape the vigilante. We will get you, even if we don't get you, and it's actually the cops that get you. We're still taking credit. Like, Scotland takes credit for most things in this world. So your flaming pitchforks were a success, Graham. Was it a cat burglar dressed in all black and sneaking around on rooftops? How did it go down? Well, um, I don't actually know because the cops don't really give you that information. <laughs> I wish they did. I wish they were they were bigger gossips um, and told, the, told us how they got them. But yes, we got the news out oh, this week that someone had been arrested for 14 different houses. So I can sleep a little bit easier now um, in between watching MLS through the night. Through the night. Congratulations, Graham. I'm very pleased for you and your neighbourhood. Uh, gents, before we get to the questions, by the way, and we've got some great ones on today's episode, I wanted to, I was really interested in what your habits are for listening to podcasts. Because I was thinking about when I do it, I'm, when I'm running, and mainly almost every single night when I go to bed, I put a podcast on. And I'm just interested in your habits. Taylor, what are your podcast listening habits? I will answer your question, but first, do you fall asleep to podcasts, or is it like your routine as you go to bed is to listen to a podcast? No, it's falling asleep to them. When I yep. realized I didn't hear what the last sentence was, I'm like, it's time to, time to unplug. That's interesting. That's interesting. I usually go with like when I'm no longer able to look at the screen because my eyes are closed, then I turn it off, which is, I think we're describing very unhealthy sleeping habits. Listeners. <laughs> I don't look forward to your emails and tweets. Uh, I tend to listen when I'm dog walking, uh, when I'm, and then when I'm doing like household stuff. And I find that sometimes I get like out of the podcast cycle, uh, and, and I'm like watching a TV show if I get like, like, into binging a TV show, I'll like listen to that or watch that while I'm doing stuff. But then it usually takes one good episode, and then I'm back in and back into the rotation of whatever show it might be. So it's usually for stuff in the like chores in the morning, chores in the evening, and then driving. Uh, we we tend to go with podcasts as well. Oh yes, I should add. I also listen to them while driving, and uh, my main uh, period is cleaning up after dinner and cleaning up the mess that my family, specifically my children, make. Joe, how about you? 
Yeah, I'm also a podcast in the car kind of guy. I'm a podcast on the walk or on the run kind of guy. And at, what if I'm at the gym as well? That's a big one for me. So I kind of all the time, I don't really listen to a lot of music and that gets me a lot of flack. I think it's gotten flack from from you all on this show, but I don't listen to a ton of music instead. If I'm by myself and I've either got AirPods in or I'm just around when no one else is around, I'm probably playing a podcast on my phone. Okay, so if I'm watching you in the gym with the dumbbells, shirt off, I presume, uh, you listen to the Total Soccer Show while you're feeling the burn, right? Yeah, exactly. I listen to our own episodes just on repeat while I'm doing while I'm, while just I'm working out. Yeah, Kanye West style. We walk into Joe's Joe's apartment and he's just listening to himself, like nodding along in a chair, like, "Yeah, I made that point." Yeah, it's, I'm basically just Kanye at Mercedes Benz Stadium. That's the that's the perfect situation. For oh boy. Me. Oh boy! Just uh, making a note for uh, my TSS fan fiction. Thank I can't think. I cannot think of a person who I would say is more dissimilar to Kanye West than Joe Lauer, <laughs> and I mean that in every possible way. I was gonna, I'm taking that as a huge compliment. So that you absolutely, works out really yeah, well. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely what I mean. I think my favorite Kanye West fact was when when he was at the White House that time and he showed everyone his unlock code, which was like zero 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 zero. I think. <laughs> oh my Solid god. Like that. You know, he changed it. I heard it's 0001 now. Oh. Uh, and Joe did briefly date Kim Kardashian, I think. So there is that overlap. Right. It's, it's yeah. lesser known, about that, but, it but is, yeah, it's in true. there. Yeah, we, we try not to talk about that on air. Good for you, Joe. Graham, I'll, I'll ask you about your podcast listening habits. Is it while conducting vigilantism or preventing it? <laughs> no, because you need to stay alert for that, right? You can't have anything in your ears. You need to keep your ear out. I mean, all, all of the above that the guys have mentioned, the one thing I can't do is in the gym, I need some sort of pumping music um so if like if ever there's like a tss vertical of just taylor like shouting at me uh <laughs> like that that might work i would listen to that in the gym oh, wow. uh, you do know when taylor was a few years younger he did a, a cover album of ramstein yeah. hits maybe you could oh, wow. uh, listen to that <laughs> yeah really that, that would also do <laughs> I'm, I always get nervous with this because there's always a chance that Ryan, as we've already seen with him knowing Joe's uh, uh, statistics, that he could do some deep Googling and he could, some, I don't know what's out there. So I got a little nervous for a moment. Oh, now I'm definitely going to do some deep Googling, Taylor. Anyway. I also, I, I forgot one more that I feel like Graham will appreciate. Uh, and Ryan, you probably will as well. Uh, I definitely will at times have one Air, like AirPod in or earbud in, and I will be listening to a podcast or something while I am sort of watching my nine month old daughter. Uh, play with toys and things like that like that is definitely a thing i will do to yeah. uh just distract a little bit because otherwise like i i do enjoy watching her play with a spatula for 15 minutes but at a certain point it is majestic and wonderful but i don't mind you know being distracted by another podcast for a little bit of time until she moves on to the next object. yeah I, I do that that's like my gateway drug and then that eventually just leads to me playing a full-blown game of football manager See, uh, this is the problem <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and then realizing where and then forgetting where the child is <laughs> as, uh, as i'm three uh, nil up against chesterfield to make the fa cup third round <laughs> I think, guys, we need to reassess that TSS uh, childcare pet podcast that we're going to release um, in a few weeks' time. Anyway, I would, I would do that show. It's going to need a hard edit. It's going to need a hard edit, guys. <laughs> we have dilly-dallied long enough. Let's get to our first question. Joey Jodlowski asks or says, This summer, we saw England bring on a few players to take penalties with little success. Thank you, Joey. Uh, this weekend, we saw West Ham do the same with no success. Are there any famous examples of this being a good strategy? I remember, says Joey, the Netherlands and their keeper being successful, but don't know of any successful kickers coming off the bench to take a penalty. Are there any big examples of this? The examples, uh, some of which Joey was referring to there, would be um, 
Uh, the Netherlands at the 2014 World Cup against Costa Rica, where they changed goalkeeper Tim Krull coming on in extra time for Jasper Sillerson. Uh, also England at Euro 2020. Uh, Rashford and Sancho came on in the 120th minute. Uh, missed the third and fourth penalties. Saka was also a sub. He came on a bit earlier to miss the fifth kick. Gents, I found a few examples. Uh, the most recent one, Taylor, is one involving your team, the Europa League final of 2021, Villarreal against Man United. One matter, and Alex Taylor's came on in the 123rd minute. They took the first two penalties of that shootout. Uh, Danny Rubber came on for Villarreal at the same time. He took the second penalty for Villarreal. They all scored those penalties, and they went very early in the running order too. Uh, you'll remember, listener, that shoot went to 11-10, and it was only David De Gea who missed his penalty to decide it. So they should have brought on um, Henderson to uh, to save that. that. Done it. Maybe saved a few as well, Taylor. Yeah, yeah why not? <laughs> I mean, David De Gea got the one this past weekend, so there's that. I think that's his first one in roughly 12 years. One. Yeah, no, that's the downside. Let's get, let, let, as as Graham always advocates. Let's just let goalkeepers take the penalties, and I, I do think that's a great idea because then we also have the opportunity for a fun counterattack that could lead to even more chaos. Uh, yeah, like I think th- there's that example. There's a few other ones, Ryan, but for the most part, I, I think it's it's less common than I expected it to be. I can't tell if that was just me being poor at research, but. Most of what I found felt anecdotal or it felt like, oh, yeah, we had an opportunity to make a couple more subs and we held them because the penalty shootout felt likely. The Louis van Gaal one in 2014 stands out and that's Tim Kroll coming on and and having, I think, specific instructions on how to play head games from that point on that he's doing a lot of standing by the like by the penalty spot longer than he needs to. He's talking to players. He's pointing which way he's going to dive. And sometimes he dives that way. Sometimes he doesn't. And I think. When you fully embrace the head games aspect of that, it can work. But for the most part, it does just seem to be, we've got a sub remaining, we can make that change. Let's put on somebody who we know is going to nail that penalty. And I think that's that makes sense. But I, I err on the side of stick with the people who are in the game, who kind yeah. of are in that flow state, can take their chances yeah. and ideally put them in. I think the, the examples, the, the, the most common examples are obviously for shootouts. So there's, there's too many, men, uh, too many examples of that to mention. I think Rodri did it for Spain against Switzerland, comes off in the final few minutes of extra time before the, the shootout at the uh, Euro 2020 for, uh, I think that was the quarterfinal. But obviously the problem you've got is if you, if you bring on a sub, bring a player off the bench for one purpose to take a penalty kick mid-match, then, you know, if he or she scores that penalty, you're left with them on for the rest of the match. <laughs> and that player's maybe not a player that you want on. So obviously the Mark Noble one is a, is a, a very specific example and a very, I say it's uncommon because everyone knows that's pretty much the last kick of the game. It is, op- it is essentially a shootout. And so he comes on, he's not going to play a part in, in the rest of the match. So I couldn't find another example like that. But as I say, you, you don't tend to get it mid-match because that scenario is very, is very uncommon. You know, the, the last kick of the game being a penalty kick. And you could, I guess you could sub them back off immediately, but then, uh, then you've used two subs <laughs> to get a yeah. penalty kick taker on. That seems like a bit of a waste. So that maybe explains why you don't tend to see it in, uh, in, in mid-match, you know, rather than towards the extra time, towards a, a penalty shootout. Yeah, Joe, I found a couple more examples from shootouts. Did you find anything else, Joe? So I didn't find much for this question. I took it in a bit of a different direction, and then I'll flip it back to you, Ryan, to to toss your examples in. Statistically, there are players that are better at penalty kicks than other players, right? Just over time, you're able to discern which players are better at it than others. But a lot of a lot of the interesting things that I found when researching this question is there's actually some player profiles that are better at penalty kicks than others. And I agree with with Graham and Taylor 
and maybe Ryan, you as well, I don't know, that generally bringing someone off the bench to take a penalty kick is is not necessarily the best thing just because you're putting them in a bit of a strange foreign situation. But there are some age groups of players that are actually better suited statistically to uh, to excelling in that situation. So I read this this article by Instat, which is a big film and stats database, essentially, online that a lot of clubs subscribe to. And they analyzed penalties going back to 2009. And at club level, analyzing a ton of penalties, they found that players that are 30 and older are, are the most accurate penalty takers. Players who are 32 and 33 years old apparently are the most accurate ones, converting 77.13% of the time, which is higher than that 75-ish percent average. They also found that, that players who are 18 and 19 at club level are the worst penalty kick shooters. They average below the average rate. That's a lot of averages, sorry. They're about 74.5%. <laughs> So I thought that was interesting, right? I know it doesn't answer Joey's question, but I do think if you're a manager who's maybe stuck in this situation, it kind of it kind of fits into the to the expected outcome here. You want to bring off the bench someone who has that experience and someone who has taken more penalties in their career. So I thought it's interesting if any of us find ourselves coaching in a Premier League game at some point in the future, maybe bring on that 32-year-old instead of that 18 or 19-year-old. Interesting. Uh, experience over innocence, if you like, Joe. I like that. Um, the, the only other examples I found were from the international game as well. A couple from Euro 96, actually. Um, the England in the semi-finals of that competition, who famously faced Germany and, and lost to Germany on penalties, were criticised for not making any subs. Uh, Terry Venables didn't make any subs over 120 minutes. Uh, in the quarterfinal, before that, England played Spain. Robbie Fowler came on 10 minutes before time. Uh, and he was slated, he tells us, uh, to take the fifth penalty kick of the eventual shootout. Um, he didn't play in the tournament before that, is uh, my recollection. And I think he only made... No, he made one other sub appearance against the Netherlands. He didn't really play in the tournament. But he was Liverpool's primary penalty taker at that point. He was nailed on to take a penalty. He was brought on in that Spain game. But he didn't actually take one because he was fifth and uh, Spain had missed by that point. So he didn't actually need to take a kick. And in that semi-final against England, uh, there was another example. Thomas Struntz was brought on. He replaced Stefan Freund, uh, who was at Tottenham at the time, I believe. Uh, in the 118th minute, he scored the second goal in Germany's shootout there. One more from West Germany from Mexico 86. Uh, West Germany, I should say, played uh, against the host Mexico. Um Pierre Litbarski came on in the dying minutes, three minutes to go in that World Cup quarterfinal. He took the fourth penalty. He scored the winner. So it can happen. It has happened on the international scene. But I think, Graham, like you're saying there with Mark, the Mark Noble situation, very, very rare. And I think we can all agree, ill-advised. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. Just while you were talking there, Ryan, I thought of an example where I've seen this before. So um, Alan Shearer's testimonial was against Celtic. And three weeks before that match, he had suffered a serious knee injury and Newcastle won. Definitely not a contrived situation at all, of course. Newcastle (laughs) won a penalty in stoppage time of that match. It was 2-2 and Alan Shearer just so happened to have his kit on underneath his suit on the bench, strips off the the suit, comes on to take the penalty, scores the penalty, 3-2. You know, he's he's hobbling. I don't think the goalkeeper was allowed to save the penalty, but that is the only time. All the research I did for this, it's just something that's just popped into my head and I googled it to, uh, to make sure that's the only other time I've seen it in a testimonial match. I, I'm more shocked that Shearer was injured for his own testimonial. I didn't know that. Yeah, a knee injury three three weeks before his testimonial. Why didn't they rearrange he was thir- it? He was 35 years old. Well, they'd sold the tickets and everything, Ryan, and the, the shirts and the <laughs> scarves and everything. You can't argue with capitalism. Can I just say that makes me 
Not that I have one feeling one way or the other about Alan Shearer, but that makes me like him more because I was watching him on Match of the Day this weekend, and when Mark Noble misses that when they're breaking it down, he doesn't really blame the player. He doesn't blame the player at all, but he he talks more about how that's a, a manager's decision that was maybe wrong that you're bringing on a player who's cold and hasn't even had the opportunity to really warm up. That he had his he was like sitting on the bench when Moyes turns and says bring him on, and. I think other personalities would have maybe brought up the time that they did the exact same thing, but they scored theirs. And I like that there was none of that. It was just like, yeah, that's, that's a risky decision and it hasn't paid off. And, and so that makes me like Alan Shear. But also I think I've enjoyed this question because I was approaching it more from the gimmick side of things of like who's, who did things in a way that was meant to throw off their opponent. And you're right that I think it usually ends up being a manager, a manager just thinking, I don't really want one of my center backs taking a penalty. If it gets to that, I would rather my number 10 or my number nine or my backup number nine. And so making those changes and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I've also learned that, yeah, if you're going to do that, have, uh, I don't know how old Juan Mata was, but I'm going to guess he was 32 or thereabouts when he took that penalty. So there we go. It all makes sense, Joe. <laughs> I love it. We all love it. Thank you very much, Joey, for that question. Uh, let's get one from Dave Roberts. Hi, Dave. Uh, Dave has two questions. Oh, he's getting two in. Cheeky, Dave. Uh, his first question is, in what parts of the world are beach soccer and futsal most popular? Part two related, will arena soccer ever become as popular again as it was in the early 80s? Taylor, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that beach soccer is popular in places with beach and warm weather. Started, uh, I believe, uh, I've been led to believe it started in Brazil, in Rio specifically. And it was also, it was codified, I understand, in the early 90s in Los Angeles. Both places with beaches, Taylor. That, that does make sense. Do you know who the number one ranked team in the world is right now on the men's side? Is it I someone do. without a beach? Ooh, ooh, it's Russia. <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Although, as we learned from Sochi, they do have their their beach resorts, and I'm guessing that's probably where this tends to get played. Yeah, Ru- I looked at the, the rankings, Russia, Portugal, Portugal, Brazil, Japan, and Italy, the top five on the men's side, Spain, Brazil, Russia, England, and the USA on the women's side. I want to see those English beaches where they're playing that beach, that beach soccer. I, I don't, I have played sand soccer before. It is really difficult and very dissimilar from standard soccer on grass. Mm. It, 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 it is... Obviously, it's a different sport because you're playing on a different surface, but it's played very differently. You have to like lift it up to yourself to hit shots and passes if you want to go that route. It's 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 more like akin to volleyball in my mind. So yeah, I think Ryan though though Russia is number one, uh, maybe that's because they've allocated money to it. I think you're right. It tends to be places where you can hang out all day and you're looking for a thing that allows you to play soccer on a beach, and so you create a game that allows you to do that. I have to imagine you get a lot of ankle injuries in yeah. beach soccer. It feels like it, that. It, it feels like it would really infuriate me. Whenever I've played soccer on a beach, it's, I've, I don't know if it's been a particularly enjoyable experience because the ball doesn't roll and yep. it's just yeah. I don't the know. If it's that, for me. The thing that I didn't realize until they do a tournament here in Virginia at Virginia Beach, and if you are a true veteran, you buy the specialized socks they make because, of course, sand gets very very hot, and even even if it's tamped down when it's surrounded by stands and advertising boards and stuff it gets even hotter so you do have to kind of wear different equipment uh to deal with that uh, ideally it is a level level ish field but you're right graham it's it definitely takes a toll it's definitely oh, wow. t- tough to get up to a full sprint socks yeah. on the beach is my favorite cocktail by the way Taylor. of course um <laughs> joe any experience with beach soccer it's so tiring oh my yep. word maybe i'm just maybe i've just been out of shape whenever i've played it 
But uh, first of all, I'm not very good, and I'm not very good at regular soccer either, so maybe that contributes to how much effort I have to expend doing it. But, man, it's so hard to run and move on sand. It's even harder to play soccer on sand. It is brutal. At least I think it's brutal. Yeah. I've definitely played with – I've not played formally beach soccer, but very much played with friends and whatnot. And uh, Graham is quite right. I'm always terrified I'm going to roll my ankle at any given point. So um, I watched it. It was on recently. It was on something. Oh, it was Fubo had like a uh, – it was like Brazil versus France or something. And I thought like, oh, that – I didn't know that international friendly was happening. I'll watch that. And then it was beach soccer. And I think it was being played at like the world championships in Russia. But I, I, I was then very fascinated for the first 10 to 15 minutes about like, is this more of a thing that I think it is? Maybe it was social distancing and COVID in place. But there were not that many people in the stands. It was – I played near a much larger stadium and then it was in a smaller sort of built-for-that-purpose uh, stadium with a few stands, not that many people in them. So I'm guessing it's not like this – little known massively popular spectator sport i think it's probably a niche sport that some people care a lot about yeah uh but i I think it probably isn't quite on the verge of overtaking uh grass soccer at this point i have i have to say futsal is more my my sort of thing i feel like that and also it feels like that's a sport that could be a a growth area like i i was absolutely serious during the olympics when i said i want futsal to be an olympic sport I mean, if three-on-three basketball is considered an Olympic sport, let's get futsal in there. And actually, right now, when I was doing my research, the the Futsal World Cup is happening right now in Lithuania. Uh, The group stages have taken place. It's now into the round of 16. Um, And I found the variety of countries involved, or at least the the countries with some sort of quality, really interesting. As you might expect, there's a lot of South American nations, but then there's also a lot of kind of Eurasian countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Iran, which I found apparently as a as a hotbed a hotbed of uh, of, of futsal, which I thought was was quite interesting. But yeah, Brazil is is is, is also the kind of spiritual foot uh, spiritual home of futsal as well as as uh, beach soccer. Graham, this is very much putting you on the spot. In Iran, do you know if it's popular on both the men's and women's sides? I do not. I'm afraid that my research did not take me there. I ask only because that that does in a country like Iran, which has, I would argue, like regressive governmental policies, mm-hmm. uh, like it would then make more sense for it to be more popular because it can be indoors. So you can make it a sort of closed venue if you need to go that way. That, that It's interesting how, how much futsal does seem like it could be the more popular thing because like Iceland, I'm going to assume it's easier to build a futsal facility indoors than it is to find an evergreen grass facility outside. And you don't need all the land. You can build it in a smaller space. I I, I feel like it it should be picking up steam and maybe it will. I don't know if that gets us to arena soccer, uh, but I I think you're right that futsal could be that that, that next big thing if people wanted to go that way. Um, First of all, Graham, I'm disappointed and shocked that you haven't already been watching the Futsal World Cup. Absolutely, putting it in your uh, in your regimen. Um, but it's just occurred to me that I've I've probably seen dozens and dozens of clips of Falcao, the Brazilian futsal player, because yeah. they're always circulating, aren't they? And he's he's almost as popular as regu- some regular soccer Brazilian players. Sentence construction bad, um, isn't he? He's, <laughs> he's um, he, he, he's he's got some legendary clips out there, so he yeah. certainly is popular in in, in Brazil, and um, I think yeah, most popular in South America. Apparently, started in Uruguay, according to my notes here. Um, and there, there was this movement. I don't know if you remember Graham. There was a there was a coach, a soccer coach in the UK called Simon Clifford. Uh, I think I'm getting his name right. I'm going off the off the dome piece here, but he tried to get 
futsal sensibilities into UK soccer, into the UK soccer training and into grassroots soccer as well, because, you know, small, heavier ball, emphasis on ball control, passing and technique. He was convinced that this was the way to make English soccer better as well. Have I made that up or do you remember that, Graham? No, I have just Googled that and you've totally, I think I had forgotten that, but he ran a um, a series of Brazilian soccer schools across the country and I totally recognise his face. I, yep. And uh, John Bostock, do you remember... Yeah. Uh, him, he, he was apparently as a graduate. I'm kind of, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here because I'm reading research as I'm, I'm, as I'm, uh, speaking it. But, um, yeah, I do remember that. I think, I think it is definitely a sport that, um, to kind of elaborate on what I was saying earlier, it feels like a sport that could grow because, you know, when Florentino Perez talks about shorter games and we yeah. all laugh at him a little bit, well, futsal is, is kind of, is, is tailored towards that. It's shorter games. It's, it's, you know, slightly more drama. It's a bit more instant, you know, more goals. And, um, you, it kind of has that overlap with freestyle and, and shareable clips and so on. I'm, I'm probably speaking, uh, like some sort of market, marketing executive here, but you get the point I'm making. It feels like it's, a, it's a, an interpretation of soccer that could have a lot of, uh, cultural yeah. pertinence right now. And All it's a I lot know closer to actual soccer. Sorry, Joe, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, all I know is that FIFA Street, the futsal mode on FIFA Street, is the best soccer video game that's ever been made. So if that's Correct. anything to go by, futsal should be played everywhere at all times. I think FIFA 97 had an indoor option, or maybe it was Boom. FIFA 96. 96 and 97, and Road to World Cup, I believe, um, Taylor. Um, but I was, I was going to say, here in Richmond, there's a few futsal facilities. Own Touch, I think, is the name of at least two of them. Um, and the argument that I have often heard is that it, it better prepares kids for outdoor soccer than it does than indoor does, because indoor is basically a different sport. You don't have out-of-bounds, you've got the walls, and... And it's like, I think even round, it's, it's a round shape versus futsal being still like the rectangular court, but you have out of bounds. So you have to kind of operate the way you would on a normal soccer pitch, but you're getting so many more touches and it's emphasizing movement off the ball, individual skill, individual technical ability. And I think it's, it is a, it's a good argument from Graham that I think it could be really good at youth level for developing better players and, and has been, but also could be. A fun spectator sport. I think Florentino Perez maybe should start a Real Madrid uh, a futsal team and really promote them and see what happens. Because also, fewer players, you can get more Galacticos in there and see what happens. <laughs> you can. Better bang for your buck. And that's, we're mm-hmm. leading into the, the second part of Dave's question here about arena soccer ever becoming as popular as it was in the early 80s. It was indeed very popular professionally in the early 80s. You had NASL players uh, going to play uh, indoor seasons and quite, quite prominent ones as well and, and from the lower tiers of uh, American soccer as well. Uh, quite popular in the northern states and in Canada where you can convert ice hockey and basketball arenas quite easily. Um, and, and I think arena soccer could technically mean futsal. It could technically, Graham, mean five-a-side as well, couldn't it? Which was five-a-side is eminently popular in the UK and in Europe as well. Um, not just professionally where they used to do regular Masters and London Fives tournaments and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. if, if, you, if you or I were going to go and play in, in the UK, Graham, it'd be, invariably probably be five-a-side rather than 11s, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Five-a-side football is the the biggest um, participation sport in the UK. I'm pretty sure I've I've read that before. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That that is what we would play. I I, I love stories of professional indoor soccer in the states um, because it it's just one of these things that feels distinctly American to me. I mean, we had masters football, which I don't think happens anymore. But that 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 tends to be older professionals playing each other. It. It's a, it's a little bit of an exhibition, whereas 
like professional indoor soccer sounds fascinating to, fascinating to me. We actually had something in Scotland called the Tenant Sixes in the 1980s and 90s, which uh, was indoor six-side soccer tournament contested by um, 10 clubs. That was actual professional players at the time. It's still spoken about to this day because it was such a novelty and Aberdeen, Hearts, Rangers, Party Thistle all won it. In fact, Party Thistle, when I was doing the research, they still have the trophy. They display the trophy in their trophy cabinet because they were the last winners of it. And I'm definitely not going to make a comment about how that's because they don't win much at all and how that's maybe one of their only trophies that they have. But yeah, I find that 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 whole kind of era really, really interesting because it just feels so detached from what we have now. Yeah, and in the same uh, manner as that tournament, I mentioned the London Fives there, Graham. It was the same thing. Every London team would play in this annual five-a-side tournament. And it'd be weird watching like the biggest stars of the Premier League wearing like white sneakers on a five-a-side <laughs> court. It was a very, very different technique going on. But um, Taylor, this reminded me a bit of, uh, do you remember pa- Pablo Mora's article on The Athletic about Soccer Slam? Uh, you can find <laughs> it. It's, uh, it's, the title is, It Was Soccer on Cocaine, The Brief Wildlife of Soccer Slam, uh, where it was basically combining indoor soccer with wrestling. And the players had oh, wow. um, characters. There was like wrestling moves and like fake storylines. The teams were called <laughs> things like the New York Bruisers. And it sounds like something from the 80s, but it was in the year 2000. Yeah, it, it, it does. For some reason, indoor soccer en- inevitably ends up, similar to arena football, it, it, it ends up being sort of gimmicky and they have to do weird things that they think will get people into it or get people into the stands. And maybe it's just because it's not such a known thing so people won't just show up to watch an indoor game and watch an indoor soccer game. But it does oftentimes lend itself to a lot of loud music and, and weird things happening away from the pitch to keep interest up and keep energy up. I Maybe it is also some uh, stimulants factoring in, and that's part of it. Uh, I, I also think sometimes it's, it's like you, it has to be hard to start a club. It has to be hard to start a thing because otherwise – I, I I picture like basketball, a movie we often reference. It's just like suddenly if everybody has a team, it, it's not that big of a deal. And it doesn't mean that you have to have sort of rules and regulations in place to make it this well-run organization. It seems to me a lot of arena teams, past and present, are very fly-by-night. They exist for two or three seasons and then away they go. Steve Perry. Steve Perry. <laughs> my buddy, my buddy in, from college actually started a team in Louisville, the Louisville Lightning. And I think they played for two or three seasons. It seemed like they had pretty good crowds and pretty good attendance. I think it's just, it's also a basketball a team massive, or a soccer team? Uh, a soccer team. Maybe okay. they expanded the baseball team, but they had a baseball team, but they had an indoor team and they were, they were pretty good, I think, uh, and, and had a big crowd, like I said. But I think it is, you're not going to make a ton of money and it's going to be difficult to keep kind of everything going on a very limited budget. And maybe that's when you get into the, but if we do more gimmicks and make it into wrestling, we'll create this innovative thing that people will really care about. And sometimes that works, and sometimes you're the XFL. And Taylor, to directly address Dave's question about would it ever become as popular as it was in the 80s, uh, we can only speculate, but I have to think no. I don't know if the economic Mm -hmm. um, scenario is there for it, with all the investment going into Major League Soccer and outdoor traditional soccer, particularly in, in North America. It feels unlikely but maybe if a uh, futsal is introduced in the olympics and it could get a foot in there I- i'm just spitballing but i don't feel like it could reach that I'm level gonna, again taylor i'm gonna get real nerdy for a moment i'm gonna say nobody thought that like the roman empire wouldn't be around until it fell and then byzantium took over and then everybody thought the byzantines would be there forever until the turks took over and away we go and <laughs> i would say the only way it happens is if FIFA and global soccer continues to eat itself. And if we suddenly have a World Cup every two years and then a World Cup every year and we've got nine other competitions and and 
it just takes away some, it just feels increasingly like, oh, they're just doing things for money. I could see, going back to basketball, people getting disillusioned and looking for different things in different ways to go about sort of recapturing that unique, innovative spirit, but also that like purity of the game such as it used to exist. So I could see it being popular if... FIFA just continue to make weird changes and at the same time get investigated for corruption. And maybe if there's like, like people get disillusioned enough with soccer on the whole, maybe they look for other ways to watch it or play it. Short of that, no, I don't think it ever supplants uh, outdoor soccer on a green pitch. Or climate change means we none of also us can that. go outside. Uh, also that. And so in that case, bring indoor soccer back. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. And on that oh uh, glum note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more listener questions shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, we are back answering your listener questions. Here we go with one from Matt Littlejohn. It's a long one. I'm going to start reading right now. Matt says, respectfully, why don't you guys use data, e.g. Smarter Scout, more in your analysis? Stats make for deeper, more interesting content, and you all are clearly well-suited to use them in your coverage. As a baseball fan turned USMNT soccer fan, says Matt, it feels like I've been sent back to the 90s and forced to focus on batting average and clutch hitting, hmm. which statistically really doesn't exist, he says. Uh, we should not be rating players for USMNT solely based on their performance in the few games they play, as that means overlooking the vast majority of a player's minutes and playing time against, in many cases, probably better competition. Uh, so Gino Des, for example, has had great defensive numbers so far at Barcelona this year. He's in the 80th percentile in La Liga. I wonder why, asks Matt. Has he changed something? Is it just randomness and he'll return to his past defensive metric levels? Based on the El Salvador game, all of USMNT has collectively ruled that he's a lost cause on defence, but maybe not. Stats, smiley face emoji, says Matt. Um, a lot to unpack there. Joe, get your thoughts on this first, but I'll, I'll, I'll start off by saying the phenomenon of using stats, and they are very useful, and I would, I would hasten to add that we do use them relatively frequently on this show as well. Um, it's a relatively new phenomenon as well. And I, I would say that watching Match of the Day in the UK back in the day, the only stat you'd get would be the scoreline. And you'd be lucky to get possession. And that sort of thing came in, crept in later as the TV coverage changed, as there was a greater need for data analysis, uh, you know, and then things like possession. And now we get to the stage where heat maps and XG and percentiles and whatnot. Joe, um, as, as this, is it fair to call you the statiest statter that ever statted on this podcast? I'll, um, uh. I'll, I'll throw to you first. <laughs> I, I'll take that nickname. I think we can make T-shirts out of that. And I do want to say, sure. I think Bruce Arena would have loved Match of the Day in the 90s. And maybe that's what he grew up watching. I mean, he's older than that. But man, Bruce Arena do, does love himself a scoreline. No, to, to get to Matt's question, why don't we use more data in our analysis? I think we, we try to use data in our analysis. And I think, it's, I think it's very helpful to use data in analysis, whether we're doing like Premier League previews. That's the first place I go is to FBREF, which is brilliant, to give me an idea of how teams played last season at a macro level. There are some challenges, though, with using data. Matt, Matt references the U.S. men's national team here a few different times throughout this question. And, and he references Smarter Scout as well. There's a challenge of data availability when talking about international soccer in the U.S. specifically. A lot of data on national teams just isn't readily available. Smarter Scout doesn't have data for the U.S. men's national team available for free or for a price. It's just not there, as far as I can tell, on their website. And so you end up trying to mix and match data from club level with, with Sergino Dest, for example, who's in the 80th percentile of defending at Barcelona, which is just a hugely vague statement anyway. And, and Smarter Scout does explain some of those things. I'm not trying to come for them in this conversation necessarily. But... You end up trying to mix and match club data with national team data, which is not wholly worthless, but it also is just a huge leap in a lot of cases. Sergio Dest playing right back for Barcelona is it has so much it has a much different context surrounding it than Sergio Dest with the national team. So there is this issue of lack of available data with 
a particular national team. And there are places out there. Um, True Media does a great job of providing certain media outlets with really great stats. Paul Carr works for them and he does a great job. Um, that stuff's really expensive. And, and there's not it's not readily available yet for individuals out there trying to watch these games, even for a lot of media companies out there trying to watch these games. So there's that problem. I, I know I've been talking for a while and I'll stop in just a second. Then there's the, the thing that Ryan mentioned, right, of the fact that stats and soccer are new. Comparing soccer with baseball right now from a stats perspective is a fool's errand. They're completely different situations in soccer. What we have right now that's publicly available and and even what's being provided from a lot of these stats providers is event data. And event data means things that are happening on the ball, a pass, a shot, a tackle, whatever. We don't have a lot of context surrounding those actions. We don't have off-ball movement. We don't have information about really where runs are coming from and where they're going and how those runs might help destabilize a team A lot of those things are things that we talk about when we're analyzing games, and we have to use the eye test in those situations because we don't have data to support it. And the moment, Matt, I I can promise you this, the moment that those things are publicly available, people are going to be hearing so much of that stuff from me that maybe they're just too angry, and I'll try to keep it somewhere (laughs) in the middle. But right now, with with how stats are available and how they're collected, we have to use a mixture of eye, eye test and stats because we just don't have the resources to actually lean all the way into the stats direction as a sport like baseball has done. Joe, I hope this doesn't like I hope you understand what I mean here because I know that I'm probably about to sound like a dinosaur. <laughs> but for for you personally, like what do stats mean to you? Like why do you like using stats when it comes to talking about a game? Um it takes for me it, it kind of takes some of the pressure off of watching a game because I still do want to look at a game and try to evaluate it with my own eyes. But it gives me another source of information, a source of pretty objective information with most stats that are calculated right now. So I can I can rely on some of those things to fill in the gaps or to cross-reference what I've seen with those stats and come away with a more informed perspective. So I think those things are hugely useful. Like if I'm going through and writing my Monday column for MLSsoccer.com, I have these stats to comb through to talk about a particular subject, whether that's set pieces or whether that's Shoot, I'm blanking on every article that I've written this year. Whether that's looking at who the best who the best creators are in Major League Soccer, going through those numbers is a great way to actually come away with a better and more well-rounded perspective on what's happening on the field. So for me, they, they fill in the gaps, they make my own analysis smarter, and they make me question things I've seen. And whenever you're questioning what you've watched and trying to come to a, a better, fuller conclusion, I think that's a, a really worthwhile thing. Does a lot of this not come down to to medium as well? So Joe, Joe, you're mentioning there, you know, your analysis for MLSsoccer.com, which is is you know written word, and I think it's maybe easier to 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 lay out data in in that way than it maybe is on on, on a podcast. You know, I find that data works really well on on um, visual mediums. So in the UK. Monday night football on a, on a Monday night, funnily enough, on Sky, um, is a lot, they go much deeper into stats than Match the Day does on a Saturday night. And that's, be- that's because they also have more time to do that as well. I would also point to Tifo on YouTube, who so do an excellent job of using data to, to paint pictures. And it's genuinely brilliant. You should check them out if you haven't already. So obviously as a, as a podcast, you know, we're not a visual medium. And so I think it's a little bit tougher to get a point across using, using data, but also it's, it's to make it, it's difficult to make it more interesting to the listener. I will frequently have stats and data in front of me in my notes and that has informed my opinion, but I will refrain a lot of the time from kind of reading out a lot of those stats just because I, I, I'm not entirely sure it's that interesting to listen to. And, and over the weekend, I mean, I, I run a, 
a fantasy football company. So over the weekend, I have a lot of data out in front of me and that does inform my uh, opinion on things. I just think maybe the medium, I, I personally, just my personal opinion, I don't think it's the best medium to communicate that data. That's really interesting, Graham, because I, I agree with you in some senses. I don't I don't actually wholly agree with that, but I, I hadn't thought about that before. It's harder to just read off a bunch of numbers on a podcast. Yeah, it's not I mean, impossible, the, and there are good yeah. ways to integrate it. Like if you can talk about tactics on a podcast, which is also inherently visual, you can talk about stats too. But that, I mean, I think I'd be lying if I said that that didn't affect me sometimes as well. Maybe that's a wrong thing to do. Maybe I should read some of those numbers off, but I can definitely feel where you're coming from there. And I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. I should, I should clarify that. I don't, I, it's not that I think we shouldn't mention data, data at all on the podcast. I think dropping it in every so often when you're making an argument is, is a good use of data, just in terms of, of deep, deep data. It's, it's difficult. I think, I think that's the thing. I think stats for me, can be utilized to when you're making an argument, especially on a podcast, to to be backed up by like actually his XGE was this. So like I think you can use it to help inform what you're saying. But even there, I used actually, and I think oftentimes that's what it gets used for. At least in my mind, at least in my like reading habits, it feels like it's like everybody thinks the striker's bad, but actually he does this and. I don't really lo- like love getting into those conversations because when you're breaking down individual play versus team play, to me it doesn't matter if a guy is good in these 1v1 scenarios four out of five times. If he gets beaten or if he's out of position that fifth time and a goal happens, you can tell me, yeah, but 80% of the time he does it right. And it's like, okay, that's great. That I'm not saying this makes him bad. I'm saying we should still look at why this breakdown happened. Why? Where did that goal yeah. come from? And so... What I think ends up happening is people will be like, Dest is a great defender because four out of five times he's good in 1v1s, whereas I'm interested in what went wrong in that fifth one. And so when you're looking, for me, when you're using stats to explain team performance and chance creation and the percentage of those chance created and the percentage of those goals scored, like I think I'm, I'm making up stats now, obviously. Joe can actually say stats that make sense, but I think that's where you can use them. But when you're trying to do game reactions especially when we do like our our quick take hot takes or our full reviews those stats aren't available and you do kind of have to go with the eye test and what you remember and then talk those things out and so if I talk about how I have concerns about I don't really have concerns about this but like Tyler Adams turning and playing forward and then Joe says well you know 70% of the time when he does that he he completes the pass that is good, but simultaneously I'll be like, okay, but on this occasion he didn't do that three different times in a row. Do you have concerns about that? And to me it ends up being a conversation about what went wrong in that game, in that sort of flow state. And I think you don't have to like, you don't have to say one is inherently better than the other. I think you can sort of bridge that divide and find some commonality in there. But speaking for myself, that's why I don't tend to rely on those stats because ultimately it ends up being like, well, his XG was better than we thought it would be. And it's like, okay, like and now what like it's not really a conversation starter it doesn't flow it's more of a like this is why i'm right is what i feel like it ends up getting used as i think that's a good point taylor and i think i i'm I'm i use a lot of stats and numbers in my work as well and i think they're important but i don't think they can dictate the story or the narrative necessarily and we we all know it's a cliche that stats can be used to prove anything and there is a danger of that I'll, i'll use an analogy i like cars okay um and my car let's say it has 400 brake horsepower uh, and it does 0 to 60 in four seconds those are great stats those are good numbers but what's more interesting to me is the emotional connection with the experience of driving the car and the emotional connection of the car itself and i kind of make that that analogous with soccer as well i'm interested in those numbers as a baseline 
to tell a part of the story. But for me, it's more important to get that emotional journey, that narrative of a game. And that was that's the kind of way I would focus it. And once again, I probably sound like a Luddite and a dinosaur for saying so. But stats are very important, and I'm not going to discount them in any way. But when 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 describing a storyteller and getting the full picture, I think it's important to use them not to not to mm-hmm. use them as a crutch, if that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 to, and to your point, they can be utilized any number of ways because you can have. A center back who completes 95% of his passes, and he had the most passes in this game, and that shows you how good he is on the ball. But then if you break those numbers down further, well, like you know, 85% of those passes were lateral to another center back or to the outside back. Okay, but then he did have this percentage that were forward. Okay, but what of those percentage were, like, dangerous passes or threatening passes? How many of them were four-yard passes to the number six who was ahead of him? Like, I think... Stats can be really useful. It depends on how they're being utilized. But there are times, I I think, and and again, maybe this is me being outdated, but I'm just trying to be honest in my approach here, that like I hear people say, well, they had 62% possession, and that means they were dominant in the game. But if you're playing a team that wants you to have possession and wants you to be sort of like moving the ball forward, overcommitting numbers, and then they hit you on the break... Like that argument doesn't hold water, but you still hear it utilized and maybe less so these days as people get more used to advanced stats. But I I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me is stats can be really good if you're incorporating them into an argument about why set pieces are more important than they've been before. I think that's really fascinating and they can sort of show you things that you didn't realize were there. They can inherit like they can uncover truths that you maybe didn't realize but if you're just using them to sort of further an argument about why a player isn't bad or why this team is better than you might think, it feels like you're using them for uh, – you've established your thesis and then you're building it with stats versus you're looking at the, net, the data and then drawing your conclusions. And anytime I feel like that's happening, I'm sort of immediately pulling back from it. A lot of it comes down to your approach and what your goal is, yeah. right? If you're looking at numbers to just validate what you're doing, it's like looking for research to write a paper that you've already written, right? I mean, that that's not yeah, exactly, a good way to go exactly. about doing things. And I, Taylor, to be honest, I don't have an issue with what you're talking about. Like, I don't have – with the things that you're saying that you don't like, I actually don't have a problem with that because I think if most people are, are doing it right, they should be looking at the data and then building conclusions off of that as opposed to the other way around. And I guess there's really no way for us to tell when that's happening in the right way versus the wrong way. For me, I, I feel like this this will be a different conversation 10 years from now. And that's ultimately my answer to Matt's question is as you come over from baseball and start to watch soccer, there's tons of really interesting stats out there that can bring value to a conversation. Some stats, though, like Taylor's talking about, aren't useful at all. Possession, not really that useful in a lot of contexts. It can be, but not always. And so sometimes we have to dig deeper to find those good things now. But 10 years from now, there's going to be a much larger group of of stats and a much larger number of of useful bits of information that we can draw in that just aren't there right now. There are a bunch of good ones there yeah. now. And I think I, I really do try to bring as many of those to the table as possible. But we're still learning just like everybody else and the stats are still being developed and made. And so there's there's good stuff now. There's going to be way more good stuff in 10 years. Joe, I'm, I'm anticipating a, a follow-up email from Matt Littlejohn. So I, I will ask this question then. Uh, because I, I'm guessing... The possession stats, for example, are probably the ones he's talking about when he compares it to baseball in the 90s. So for for you, Joe, what are some of the more like, I don't know, the more interesting stats or the way of collecting data that you think should be more utilized either on this show or elsewhere? Like what are some some just points that you think are, are, are useful for understanding what's happening in the game, either at, at an individual level or team wide? Yeah, some of the some of the things you're just mentioning there, Taylor, with center back passing, right? That's a case of 
that's a situation where stats can be really misused of just looking at there, there'll, there'll be people on Twitter that post like, oh, this center back had 95 percent pass completion. Exactly like you're saying. Not useful. Right. I just strike a big X through that. That's irrelevant. Don't care about that at all. Personally, what you can do, though, is you can go in and look. American Soccer Analysis has a bunch of great stats for MLS and NWSL and USL. In USL League One, they have so many great stats in there, and they have something, I don't remember what it's called, but it essentially measures the verticality of passers and, and what their tendencies are when they get the ball, how far upfield are they passing on average per pass. That gives you a much better idea of their tendencies. Or you can go through and look at something like key passes, which measures passes that lead directly to a shot. Or you can look at progressive passes, and there are a bunch of different ne- definitions for that. But the, ba- the basic idea is passes that move the ball up the field that build value to attacks and help advance possession into more dangerous goal-scoring areas. There's tons of good stats. I don't even have the the brain power to remember all of them. There's great yeah. resources. FB Ref, ASA. Uh, if you can pay for some of these other things, go go find a source like True Media or or even Smarter Scout to an extent. You can do this stuff. Just look for the good stats, and there are some out there. But again, back to my point, there's going to be way more of them in a few years. Yeah, and I think those stats. So, like this will be the final comment for me. Theoretically, uh, is like I think those types of stats can help when it comes to like removing bias or changing perspective because uh to matt's point there there is this idea i think that like serginio dest is suddenly a complete liability on defense maybe that's the system maybe that's him just not wanting to play that much defense at national team level but if you then have these breakdowns of like actually he's super good in this scenario and in this scenario he was really good i think it can help you basically keep confidence in the player so that when I watch them the next game, instead of thinking, oh, he's terrible in 1v1s, and then as soon as something goes wrong, as soon as there's one mistake, even if there were nine successful plays before it, I might overly focus on that. I think it can help redirect the conversation for sure. But I think also we're doing a podcast that people listen to. People are emotional. If people have just watched a game where he gets roasted for a sequence that leads to a goal, and I come in and say, actually, you know, his his statistical data, it shows that he's a really good defender in most situation like no one cares no one's going to want to hear that because you're not talking about the thing that happened in the game you're talking about other stuff that has happened elsewhere which can help you inform the player's overall quality but it doesn't matter if they've just conceded a goal in world cup qualifying you know it's done now (laughs) (laughs) matt thank you very much i didn't hear what you said at first and that's why i'm (laughs) laughing with increased intensity (laughs) matt thank you for the Uh, question my glasses Uh, we, we shall move on to another question here from Mr. Kenneth Seaton. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Thank you for getting in touch once again. Kenneth asks, how much money should Ryan Bailey and I be putting on FC Sheriff to make it out the Champions <laughs> League group stage? What a question! Uh, Sheriff Tiraspol, my favourite Moldovan champions. They are top of Group D at the moment, Graham. Their shock 2-0 win over Shakhtar on match day one put them there. Uh, got the opening goal in that game from Adama Troyore. Not that one, of course. Uh, they, they got Real Madrid up next week. Then they've got Inter Milan and then they host Real Madrid. It's a tricky question and a tall order, Graham, for them to get out of this group. I've got I've looked up some precedents, but what's your what's your emotional feeling on this coming out? Um, maybe don't maybe keep your money in your pocket. I would say, <laughs> or or at least wait until they've been to the Bernabeu uh, to gauge that one. I mean, what I, what I should uh, what I would say is this is a team that had a. Fairly difficult route through qualifying. They dumped Dino Zagreb out, uh, Red, Red Star Belgrade. Alish Carr, who I have personal experience with, they beat Rangers in qualifying. And Rangers are not a bad team. You know, this is a team that made the round the, round the 16 in the Europa League last year. So 
yeah, they, they might be an unfamiliar na- name, um, but it does seem like they have some quality and they're, they're, they've got a very strong defence. They conceded once in their last eight games, which includes three European games, two qualifiers in there. So, yeah, they, 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 they might not be the whipping boys, but I would maybe save your cash on whether they're going to get out of a group that includes Real Madrid, Inter and uh, Shakhtar Donetsk that spent 50 million euros this summer compared to... Sheriff, who spent €250,000 this summer, that maybe gives you some context of where these clubs are in in terms of their uh, quality and strength. Definitely so. There's some economic differences, I think, some disparity in this group, Graham. Uh, We're asking them to keep uh, one of Inter Milan or Real Madrid out of the Champions League uh, knockout stages, which for me, would be one of the biggest shocks of all time. So I looked at the numbers from the bookmakers. I was expecting some 100 to 1s, some 200 to 1s on this, Graham. Um, the odds for Shaq to, uh, FC Sheriff, sorry, Sheriff Tiraspol to qualify from the group, 8 to 1. Average of 8 to 1. Shakhtar 5 to 1. So not much behind Shakhtar in the group. Uh, Inter at 1 to 4 and Madrid at like 1 to 80 or thereabouts. So the bookmakers think it's not the craziest bet in the world. Taylor, when I was looking through... Um, for some precedent of this kind of thing happening, I think one of the closest I could find was... This is going to be a Man United dig, isn't it? Nearly. 2011-2012 season, Applewell, the Greek side, they topped uh-huh. their group, but their group wasn't as strong. It was Zenit, Porto, and Shakhtar. That same season, however, Tay-Tay, Basel kept Man United out of the knockout stages. And Applewell, yeah, by the way, fun one. They, um, they beat Lyon in the round of 16. They lost to Madrid in the quarterfinals that year. So that was one of the closest I could find. Um, also, one that struck me was, do you remember Ruben Kazan when they beat Barcelona? That was in yes. 2009-10, sort of Pep-era Barcelona. Uh, Inter and Barca in that group. Um, they actually only finished third in that group, Ruben Kazan, though, but they got into the Europa League. So... Uh, there have been shocks in the group stage, but enough shocks, Taylor, to uh, to get them through to the knockout stages does seem unlikely. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Because even if you're playing half of your games at home, you still got to go on the road. Stands to reason you're maybe going to drop a point or two at home and you're definitely going to drop some points on the road. So I, I would love for them to get out. I think that would be fascinating. But I think the frustrating thing about the Champions League is that it tends to be a lot of the same clubs that end up making it through. Those tend to be the well-known, richest clubs that are going to do that. So every now and then we get that surprise. But even then, I think like the most recent one I can think of was like Ajax making it all to the semifinal, making it all the way to the semifinal. And that's Ajax. Like one of the most famous clubs in the world is still being seen as like an underdog compared to the teams that are usually there. So for Sheriff to make it out would be probably the sports like the soccer story of the year if sheriff made it out of that group i think it's it is akin to leicester winning the premier league yeah. on levels of surprising well not according to the bookies though taylor because uh, what was it a thousand to one five hundred to one that leicester were to win the league five thousand to one 5, 000, because it was two thousand to one that elvis is still alive yeah. i will forever remember that stat <laughs> so that's a bigger number than eight to one to get out <laughs> of the group according to the bookmakers right now wow all right, yeah. see, there you go. So maybe they will. Maybe That's, they will. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think it would be a pretty big one. Well, I think, and maybe you'll agree, Joe, I think those numbers surprise me because it does feel like a 5,000 to 1 situation. Joe. Y- yeah. I, to answer the question, $5.56 is my answer um, for Kenneth because that will win okay. you a cool $50.04, just about $50. I mean, taking a $5 flyer on Sheriff doesn't sound like the worst idea to me, but I thought the odds were going to be much more favorable for making a bet like this, and uh, yeah, I'm keeping my money in my my back pocket most likely 
I don't always like gambling. This is the type of gambling I do enjoy. Because if you don't have a vested interest truly in a team, sometimes putting even just five bucks behind them will then make you really care about every single <laughs> Sheriff game and get really into them. And that can be the kind of motivation you need. Sheriff is maybe not the example, but it can get you into a club that then makes that relationship longer lasting or gets you into a league or a competition or a player. And I think that is where I tend to be more okay with gambling than wagering tons of monies on massively complicated uh, parlays. My my honest answer, gents, is that the odds don't work for me on this one. Um, if it was 50 to 1, I think 5 bucks would be a fun crapshoot for that one, frankly. I don't think it will happen, but I think that's worthwhile. For 8 to 1, I think I'd rather just go take my 5 bucks and get the venti latte instead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Kenneth, thank you very much for that question. And we do hope that Sheriff Tourist Bowl uh, do prosper as they have done thus far in this Champions League group stage. We'll be back after this break with more questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. A couple more questions coming at you. This one from Brian Hansen, who says, Every once in a while, you hear players and managers to refer to, refer to each other by nicknames. It's jarring, says Brian, like hearing someone call Robert De Niro Bobby. I've done that before. <laughs> interesting. Are there any interesting ones that stick out to you? Um, I've got, I found some, there, there's obviously some really good soccer nicknames out there. Um, Fitz Hall is always my favorite. He was a <laughs> yeah. defender at Palace QPR and Watford. His nickname was One Size. One Size Fitz Hall, um, nice. which always was my favorite. But that wasn't given to him by the uh, players. My understanding is that was the fans who did that for him. I found a couple of teammate-specific ones, which I'll reel off now if you'll indulge me, gents. Um, Brian McClare at Man United, Taylor, was called Chocky. Do you know I why? I that one too. <laughs> yep. Because <Yep. laughs> McClare rhymes with eclair. 
Yeah, Chocky Eclair, which is a delicious treat. Isn't that clever? Soccer players, clever guys. Also, on that note, um, Cesar Aspilicueta at Chelsea being called Dave. I think, I'm pretty sure this was a player <laughs> one rather than a fan one. Yeah. Cesar Aspilicueta being a complex name for the John Terrys and, um, uh, and, and his Chelsea ilk to pronounce comically and maybe racistly calling him Dave. Uh, that's um, That one has kind of stuck as well. And... One subset of nicknames that are given to players uh, by other players uh, is Brazilian names, Taylor. Hulk, who looked like mm-hmm. the Hulk when he was younger, uh, whose name is Giovanildo Vieira de Souza. Nothing to do with Hulk. And even you can extend that to like the Enios of this world. Ronaldinho, who was, who was Ronaldo, who was very small, so his teammates called him Ronaldinho back in the day. Taylor, any thoughts on this? Nicknames. Yeah, I think Hulk... Probably needs a new nickname for the reasons that he's been in the news lately. Uh, you can create those yourselves if you want to. Uh, the, the, I do, uh, when we're going with the, the Bobby question, I think I've only heard him called Bob De Niro, which is still strange. Uh, I don't know if Bobby Firmino is one that his teammates call him, but that is one I have heard at least from fans. And I think that's where my assumption would be, no disrespect to you, Joe, but my assumption would be that you, Ryan, and Graham will have better answers to this because I think English media probably more invasive but better at knowing like what players say to each other what players call each other because uh, i think of so many of the nicknames that I, I found when i was reading or researching or that i write down or wrote down tend to be things that like i don't know if they're actually called that or if that's just what we've come to call them or if that's like a, a fancy nickname that you use when you're writing an article about them the other one i had brian mcclair the other one that i think is just like a, a name that has stuck is chicharito his father being uh, i think it was chicharo the p Chicharito, his son, is the little P. And that one, I think, is, is you know, goes back to family, like family name, less so teammates nicknames. But I think those are the ones, that type of name versus like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being the baby-faced assassin. Like, I don't know if his teammates called him babyface. That seems unlikely. So I think those are ones that maybe we attach to them after the fact versus what they're actually called in training. I think for the most part, yeah. it's just sort of, as are most nicknames, just shortened or easier to say Wayne Rooney becomes Waza because I think that's oh, probably easier to say in a game. Waza. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's just so many of those that like, like Rio Ferdinandis Ferdi. Like I, it, it's sort of just sort of shorthand because that's what you want in a game. Yeah. I think um, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Like Babyface Assassin, six syllables is a lot to shout out when you're trying <laughs> yeah. to get a pass played to you. And it yeah. tends to be the shortenings with like O on the end. Dean is Dino, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right, Graham? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really niche uh, reference, but there's a the scene in School of Rock where Jack Black goes along the line of children and calls them like Carrot Top, yes. Road Runner, like that's that's how I, like those those names don't really work in a dressing room setting, like Atomic Ann, El Nino, Ginger right. Ninja, like yeah. you know you're not really going to do that. Soulshare is one of the worst for the kind of uh, the shortening of names that you were talking about, Taylor. There, so he calls Anthony Marshall. I've noticed Anto. He calls Marcus Rashford Rashi, which I've just, I I just can't get on board (laughs) with that one. The worst nickname though was during the Euros actually, when in the England squad they seem to be calling Luke Shaw Shoberto Carlos, which I'm not on board with that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Just a terrible, terrible nickname. I mean, there's, there's, the play on words there is, is, uh, tenuous there, shall we say? It's, it's not the best, but I always liked my favorite nickname. For a player, which I think is used by players, fans, everyone was for Zinedine Zidane, which was Zizou, 
which I always liked that one. I don't actually think it has a meaning. I was doing a bit of research, apparently, and in some like French dialects, it, it, it means white cat, which I'm not sure if that's linked to anything, but I think it's just because it sounds a little bit like Zinedine Zidane, obviously the double Z there, so Zizou was always one I that think, I liked. Um, Graham, it's because they were fans of Wes Anderson movies. Right, yeah, yeah, of course. Why didn't I think of that? I <laughs> see, like, the, the Shalberto Carlos one is, it's just so clumsy that, like, my, like, I don't know on a professional level what, what they go with, but from my playing experience, we had a Scottish coach once who, a, a kid in one of a, one of our games hit the, hit the post twice in two different moments, and both times our coach screamed, like, oh, I tinged the post, or something like that. And that, and he became, like, Tinger. And then I think, I, I, like, his strike partner, double hit the post like with a shot and then he became double ting so like that like those became yeah. like ting and double ting uh that was like their nickname for a little bit of time and i think those seem more organic and thus seem more appropriate but also i think like people on the outside of that team are probably not gonna get to know those little things so i'm sure there's very strange nicknames that they have for each other that they're probably not going to say when they're sitting down for their scripted or very sort of formal interviews yeah, I think, I think we also need to remember, speaking from my own experience of being in like a football dressing room as a, as a teenager, like particularly young people, nicknames don't really have that much depth, which I think is what you're referring to there, yep. Taylor. So like I had a, I had a friend whose nickname was Pie just because yep. he liked pies. I had another friend who, I'll explain this one because this one sounds like it might be a reference in something else. His nickname was uh, Skidder because he once ran into a dress room and just like his studs just took him and he skidded the whole way along the floor. So like there's not a lot of depth to those sort of nicknames and I think that's probably how most nicknames in most dressing rooms and uh, at football teams, that's that's kind of the basis for them as well. I have heard one Manchester United player in a preseason game yell at another one, "Go on, fatty." So there you go. Like you will, <laughs> I think you'll get those sort of sort of nicknames uh, that probably don't stick for very long, but in the moment are fun. It wasn't talking to Ansu Fatty, was he? He was not. That okay. would have made a lot more sense. <laughs> he was talking to a defender that we've already mentioned in this very conversation. Oh, what's all the Luke Shaw hate about? Come on, Graham. You've got fullbacks. You don't need to be coming at ours. Um, I didn't call him fatty. His teammate <laughs> called him that. Thank you very much, Brian Hansen, for the question. Or as we should now call you, Bry Guy. Umbop. He's so hot right now. He's so hot right now. I think there's there's lots we could do with that. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, one final question for the episode, gents. Michael Hastings Black. Thank you for this one, Michael. What's the difference between hero ball and taking the game by the scruff of the neck? They sound mm. similar, says Michael, but the former is criticised and the latter is lionised. Uh, Taylor, I'm going to hand to you mm-hmm. because I don't really know what hero ball means. Yeah, th- th- that's fair. I really do think this is in the context of the current U.S. men's national team. And it speaks to a problem I've been having that I hope that maybe we can come up with an answer for on this episode. But to me, it's it's the problem of the current U.S. team is not having a person who sort of is just going to be that like that motivating figure, that motivating leader. And I've talked about this. I think I talked about it yesterday with Sam. I've talked about it with uh, on our show with uh, the scuffed fellas that like you want somebody who is in that moment when you need a goal is going to pick the team up and not back down. And I will forever go with Clint Dempsey as that person for me that he's going to get into it. He'll bump chests with it with an opposition player, but then he'll, he'll talk trash. He'll still try stuff, but you know, even if he gets fouled seven or eight times aggressively, he's going to get back up and 
walk away like it was nothing because you've got to have that sort of spirit, that mentality. And I think it's severely lacking from this this U.S. team right now. Sam made a very good point yesterday that a lot of it probably relates to the youth. But I think that speaks to the difference between hero ball and taking the game by the scruff of the neck. I feel like when you have a player who's just like, they're just not going to give up, they are going to grind and grind and grind until eventually, even if the team can't find a way through, they will make something happen. Didier Drogba is a very good player at taking the game by the scruff of the neck and making something happen versus a player who just tries to dribble and dribble and dribble and dribble and gets stuck every single time but keeps going for it because they solely are trying to make something happen. That, to me, is hero ball, where you sort of are removing the team and making it about yourself because nobody else can do it, I have to do it, versus this whole team has to do it and I have to lead by example. I think that's the key difference for me. Joe, your thoughts on this one? Is it is, is there some difference in the semantics here? Uh, probably, and I, I like what you're saying there, Taylor. To me, I've always judged this by the outcome, which is a horrible way to go about doing this, right? And this gets to my, uh, Michael's, the end of Michael's question. If it goes well, then you took the game by the scruff of the neck. If it didn't, then you played hero ball and we're going to roast you for it. It's not, I, I don't really know how to discern between these two things. There is a leadership element to it, certainly, and that's something that the U.S. men's national team is lacking right now, if that is indeed where this question is rooted from Michael. I, I think these things are very similar to the point where I don't think I personally am capable of telling what the difference is. All right. Here's a, here's a good example. This is from a recent uh, – the, the PSG game this past weekend. So Neymar is a player that I think I would often say does sort of fall into hero ball mentality on occasion. And he is trying to just make something happen himself. You can argue if that's because he wants the headlines or because that's just his mentality. But in that game, he takes somebody on, he gets by them, he takes somebody else on, and I think it's poked out for a corner. He then goes and gets that ball, he jogs to get it, he jogs to the corner, he sets it down, and while his teammates are getting set into position, he turns and just starts like waving the crowd, and they get very, very loud as a result, and that atmosphere picks up. And to me, that's the difference. It's not... I'm going to take people on, I'm going to beat them, and then when it goes out for a corner, you sort of walk to the middle of the 18, you're like, now I'm going to score a goal here. It's, let's keep it going, we want to keep this intensity up, we want to keep them on their back foot, I want to get the crowd into it. And you're sort of doing all of these different things, it's like a conductor in an orchestra, sort of managing everything at the same time to try to keep everything as high performance as it can be, versus tunnel vision, head down, I'm going to make something happen, is to me the the opposite end of that. It's just, I am the only one who can do something, and so you sort of stop seeing the, the team, you only see it as your individual performance. So taking the game by the scruff of the neck, then, for you, Taylor, has more of mm-hmm. a holistic, like, overarching kind of meaning yeah. to it. It's not yeah. necessarily just what's happening on the field in an individual moment, but it's the personality of the player and how they're spurring their teammates on, stuff like that. Yeah, so like like I think Tyler Adams on occasion does it really well. He definitely does it for uh for Leipzig. I remember him doing it last season. There's a game when he comes on as a second half sub and he's like carrying the ball forward on occasion. He's riding challenges. Sometimes he's drawing fouls. But then there's also moments when he's sprinting 20 yards back to make a sliding tackle to put it out for a throw in or to win the ball back and then play it forward. And he's not winning the ball then like carrying it the length of the field to score. Another good example of that would be Wayne Rooney, the famous goal for DC United when he sprints back, what, like 60 yards to win a tackle and then carries the ball forward a little bit, plays the long ball into the box. I think eventually Lucho Acosta scores, but it's, he's not even the one scoring the goal there, but he's the one making that extra level of effort to win that ball, to play it forward. And that's where to me, it's like, he took the game by the scruff of the neck. He said, no, you're not scoring. We are going to score this goal. I just think there needs to be going back to my like original thing I was saying, I just think there needs to be a better phrase for that. Like, I don't know who that player would be 
be that we think of as like never giving up and always like trying to get his team to cross the finish line with a win. But maybe we should just name that after the player and then we have a better shorthand for Milnering. it. I don't know who that would be. Milnering. James who? Milnering. <laughs> that might be he's just so calm. <laughs> like it's hard <laughs> for me to to picture James Milner like really getting the squad up for a pre-match team talk. Bruno Ball, Fernandez, does he do that a bit? That could work, yeah, I think so. Bruno we don't have Ball to think about is. this one. But Who would it be for Scotland, Graham? Uh, well, we don't ever win games, so we, <laughs> we, <laughs> no one ever takes a game by a scruff of the neck. Yeah, does it, uh, does I guess, it not require a I guess Andy Robertson did it a bit during the Euros, but the criticism of him had been he hadn't done that until the Euros, so yeah. I'm really not sure. Tierney, right. maybe? Let's say Tierney. He's my favourite. <laughs> I'll have to keep thinking about this one. I'll have, to, I'll have to try to find the player who most often did that. Good stuff. Uh, all right. Thank you very much for that question, Michael. Thank you for all the questions we've had today. Do keep them coming. Go to the Total Soccer Show website if you want to submit yours as well. But for now, we have reached the end of this episode. Taylor Rockwell, thank you, dear. Right back at you, my buddy. I'm leaning towards Beasley right now. Beasleying. Uh, Demarcus Beasley is a player who I think of as never really quitting, which is why he plays for so long at such a high level. All right. Graham Ruthven, thank you for taking this pot by the scruff of the neck. <laughs> no problem, Ryan. And Joe, no hero, hero ball from you today. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> you got it. Listener, thank you very much. Bye! Yee!